let's stand for the reading of the word. We're going to read out of Acts chapter 9. And continuing on from where we were last week. So let's, let's read this. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to stop at verse 8 for the reading. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for a letter to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them to be, bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. All right, we are continuing this little section as we're going through Acts, and we are looking at some key characters, some character studies, and last week, how many of you guys were here last week? Feels like forever ago. Last week we talked about sort of the origin story of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, his, his uh, background and origin. And this week, we're looking at the Damascus Road, his conversion when he becomes a Christian, when all of that zeal that he had for the Torah and zeal that he had for the Lord gets shifted to Jesus. Acts chapter 9, the whole thing. This is probably one of the most important narratives we're going to look at in Acts in Acts. It's important enough that Luke records versions of this three times in the book of Acts. Once here, told by Luke, uh, and twice later on in the book, Paul tells this story himself. So in chapter 22 and chapter 26, uh, you, in chapter 22 and 26, you get Paul's telling of the story himself. Which is, I think, important. This is an important thing to look at because it lays a foundation of our faith of conversion. Saul is converted. Our faith is a faith of conversion where, where we are transformed. And I think the fact that this is told three times, I think this speaks to our, our need and the power of telling our story of how we are becoming more and more like Jesus. This is, it's an important thing to note that Paul tells this story twice that we have recorded, but that the implication there is that multiple times he's telling the story. How did you come to the Lord? How in the last week have you been more and more transformed into his image? How, have, how are you being converted <laughs> even now? Are you telling those stories? 
Let's jump in. We're just going to walk through this passage. Like I said, I, I slept in an airport last night, so we're going <laughs> to just walk through this uh, verse by verse here, jumping right into verse 1 that we just read. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Picking up where we left off, Saul saw himself, remember that we looked at last week, continuing in the vein of Phineas and Elijah. He's, he's channeling the zeal of his ancestors, fighting for the purity of his faith. He's thoroughly devoted to his way, to the way of, of his faith. He wanted nothing more than to please the Lord. He's sincere in this. He's, he's, he's committed wholehearted to doing what he thinks is right in a way to fight for the purity of his ancestral faith. In his mind, he's remembering the stories of Babylon and exile and, and currently where they're at with the Romans, and he's like, we have to fight to keep the faith pure. And so he's breathing threats. He's on a mission. He's armed with what we would now call like an extradition order. He has papers from the high priest to go and find anybody who's participating in the way. It's an early way of talking about the church. And to purge this blasphemous way from these surrounding communities. He, this has to stop. He's on a mission. It cannot spread anymore or it would do damage. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling on the ground, he heard a voice to, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why are you persecuting me? As I was reading this, this week, thinking about this, really stood out, why are you persecuting me? Jesus doesn't see the church as an it or as a building or as a thing. Jesus identifies himself with the church. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. That's how much he loves and cares for the church. He so united himself with the church that he sees himself as one and the same. And if you're persecuting the church, you're persecuting him. This is going to throw Paul off, right? He, he's going to say, what do you mean? I'm not persecuting you. I've never, I don't know who you are, Lord. I'd never persecute somebody as bright and shiny as you. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what he would say. But for Jesus, there's no separation between him and his church. There's no division there. They, they are one. The analogies that we have, right, the, the church is the bride of Christ. There's no separating Jesus' love 
with the church. You can't say that you love Jesus and hate the church. That does that doesn't work. Jesus says that's his bride. This is super important because I think there are a lot of people that I mean you guys have you guys heard that? Seen the bumper sticker? Jesus I like. I can do without his church. Have you ever seen that? I think there's a lot of people who say they love Jesus, but they're only marginally involved, marginally committed, marginally connected to his bride. I think especially coming off of, you know, COVID and, and all the dividing factors of the last few years, nationwide church attendance has dropped from an average of three Sundays, It's just like brass tacks here, three Sundays a month to like 1.25 is the average church attendance nationwide. Probably, I mean, yeah. <laughs> In our areas, there's, there's many different competing interests and, and uh, things that pull on our attention, our involvement, our commitment, our effort, and our resources. But the reality is, and this is what stood out to me this week as I was looking at this, is that to Jesus, the church is his bride. He's one with her. With a household of faith, both of those analogies, a bride and a household, both of those analogies involve two things, commitment and sacrifice. There's no passivity in those relationships. To be a household involves commitment and involvement. To be a spouse, husband and wife, involves commitment and involvement. There's no selfishness in those relationships. To be a good wife or husband involves laying down your life. You can't be a consumer. Consumers won't like this, and this is the thing, is that uh, church is not, church, how do I say it? Church is not YouTube. You can't do church on YouTube. Church involves being a part of something beyond just consuming goods. I know you all know this. We don't come here week in and week out to consume something. But we're comfortable with fast food, sort of the, the good, good experience once 1.25 times a month. But that's not the church. I've heard people talk about they're embarrassed with the church. Sorry, I'm kind of, I'm on a tangent here a little bit. <laughs> uh, I've heard people talk about they're embarrassed with the church. And that, to me, I think that's, uh, <laughs> I think the reality is that we probably embarrass Jesus a lot. And if we say that we're embarrassed with the church, I mean, you have to realize you probably embarrassed Jesus too. But he still, this is what I love about this verse, he's committed to you, whether or not you embarrass him <laughs> and make him look bad, because we all do. But he is committed to you and uh, after you, and he wants to be, he identifies with you. And if he can identify with embarrassing, broken things like me and you, 
then I think we can identify with an embarrassing, broken community, right? Okay, my tangent is over. Uh, <laughs> continuing in, verse 5. Is that okay? Yeah? We're here tonight. You guys, like, eat too much barbecue or something for lunch? Not me. Yeah. <laughs> verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Remember, he, I would never persecute this shining being. Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what to do. Later in Acts, Paul's going to recount this story. Acts 22 and Acts 26, he's going to tell the story again. In 26, he says something. He, he kind of adds a phrase here. He adds a, a bit to this. He interjects something. He, he says that the Lord said this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That sentence, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What is that? A goad was a prod that was jabbed into the back of an ox's leg. So you had a stubborn young ox, and you wanted to get it to move. You wanted to train it and break it to work for you, and you would take this stick, and you would jab the ox in the back hind leg, and the ox is stubborn, right? And it's going to kick against it repeatedly, hurting itself. Eventually, it will learn. Saul's conversion, this is important, there's a misnomer here. Saul's conversion was not this, like, instant, sudden conversion. That's the point of this. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. This is the final conversion, the final thing that happens here is, is amazing, and light shines, and he falls, and he's blind. But this conversion happened, it started a long time ago. The Lord had been prodding him, poking him. This is by no means the first time Jesus had spoken to him, had been leading him. He was... Jesus was pursuing Saul for a while. Saul was like a reluctant ox, and the Lord was like a farmer prodding it, trying to get it to go the way that it should go. What were these goads? What were these prodding things? that Jesus was pricking against him? What were these, what was motivating him? What was painful here for him? We're not specifically told. But a couple things come to mind. We, we looked at a few of these, but there had to be some sincere doubts. Remember his teacher, we talked about this last week, his teacher said, let this thing play out. If this is of God, you might actually be opposing God. Let this thing play out. 
there had to be some lingering doubts in his conscience, in his mind. He believed Jesus was an imposter, but he had seen amazing things at this point. Subconsciously, I don't think he could get Jesus out of his mind. We talked about last week, the death of Stephen haunted Saul. He was there. He, he witnessed and approved of the, the martyrdom of Stephen. This wasn't hearsay. He didn't just hear about it. He saw it happen. He was there for the trial, for the execution. He had seen with his own eyes Stephen's face shining like an angel. He was there. He had seen Stephen's non-resistance, his courage to stand in the midst of the accusations. It's probable that he heard Stephen's wisdom at the synagogue as Stephen proclaimed the gospel. He heard with his own ears Stephen's sermon from a few chapters ago. He heard Stephen's prayer for forgiveness for those who were about to execute him. He heard Stephen's extraordinary claim that he saw Jesus at the right hand of the Father. There were unanswered things that Saul had to have been wrestling with. Unanswered questions about this Jesus person. He had seen the way Christians died. The way they laid their life down. And it didn't make sense. He was challenged. Perplexed. All of these things were like a prod poking, bothering Paul, wounding him as he was kicking violently and more violently and more aggressively against it. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. I just thought this was an interesting passage, interesting phrase, and how often this is how it is. The Lord's doing something in your life, the Lord's speaking to you, leading you, guiding you. People around you are hearing the same sermons, they're reading the same books, and it seems like nothing's happening and the Lord's speaking to you. Anybody else experience that? Verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now picture it. Imagine Saul, the persecutor, who was breathing threats, murderous threats. He was ravaging the church. Remember the language that Luke uses here is of an animal, a wild boar tearing up a carcass or tearing and destroying a field to describe the way Paul was ravaging the church. Saul the Mighty is now kneeling before God. The one who had seen with such clarity the need to purge the church of this blasphemy, 
or the, the faith, is now being led by the hand as a blind man. The one who had seized others and taken them off to prison is now seized by the Lord, broken. The reality is this is Saul's actual internal situation. He is broken, blind, and helpless. And it's as if the Lord, for three days, exposed the reality of Saul's heart. He was bankrupt, blind, and helpless. For all of his effort and striving, all of his work to try to please the Lord, this was the reality of his condition. Blind and helpless. Now as the story goes on, we meet sort of one of the unsung heroes in the New Testament. His name is sort of unfortunate because it ties in with the other guy. But we meet this guy, Ananias. Not the Ananias who previously was killed. And Paul's conversion tells two stories. Tells the story of two disciples. Two sides of this conversion. Ananias shows us how the church can and should respond when somebody from outside who's far from Jesus comes to the Lord. Let's look at this, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Now knowing what we know about Saul, can you imagine this situation? Can you imagine being, putting yourself in Ananias's shoes, sandals? I would, I imagine myself being like, wait, what, Jesus? Who? I know of a Saul from Tarsus. That's the guy who's ravaging the church, <laughs> who's breathing murderous threats, who, as we speak, has an extradition order to take any of us and throw us in prison and put us on trial. Yeah, good one, Jesus. Ha ha. April Fool's. It's kind of hard to even imagine, honestly, what this would be like. You have to think about somebody so completely opposed to your faith, completely opposed to the church, the most vile, murderous, hateful person. And imagine that Jesus comes to you in a vision or a dream and says, they're at land and water right now. I want you to go and have a conversation with them. Go sit down with them. Pray with them. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. 
But Ananias answered, I love this, <laughs> Lord, um, I don't mean to object here. Are you serious? No, he didn't actually say that. He said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I love that the Lord, like, entertains this banter, you guys. It's okay to have real, genuine dialogue with the Lord. <laughs> Wait a second, God. I don't know about this. I don't know if you really know what you're asking me to do. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, go. Debate's over. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, I love this too, Brother Saul, a term of endearment for this one who is just there to murder him. <laughs> Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened, and for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. When we looked at, remember that story with Philip? Is there any reason to withhold baptism? Baptism is, this, is the entrance to the family. It's, it's the sign that you have been brought into the family, that you are, you are now one of us. Is there any reason to withhold baptism from this murderous Saul who was here literally on a mission to kill us? Okay, I have a few thoughts here, just some reflections. We are all being converted. I think the part of the reason this is so important is that we are all being transformed from glory to glory more and more into the image of Christ. We all have an initial, I mean, if we're followers of Jesus, we have an initial conversion moment. But even ongoing, we're being transformed into his image. 2 Corinthians 3 says this, for we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Paul again in 2 Corinthians 5 says, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We're being transformed. But in all of that, it's important to note that God is pursuing you. He is after your heart. He's a jealous God. He longs for all of you 
He wants it all. There's a refrain from the Song of Solomon that I love and I think explains the Lord's pursuit perfectly. It says this, Song of Solomon 8, 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave. He is after you. His jealous love is after all of you. And he won't stop prodding you, Christian, until you conform into his image. That's the purpose of this life in discipleship. He's moving us, sometimes like stubborn ox, more and more into his image. How is God prodding you? How is he tugging at your heart? Where is he leading you this week? Sometimes this prodding is painful. Sometimes it's not. If we resist, we kick against them, it could be more painful. I was thinking this week about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said this about his conversion. He said, found this fascinating. He called himself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. He was drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. In his own autobiography, as he tells the story. I want to read a section from The Voyage of the Dawn. I always miss Dawn Treader. I always mispronounce that word. Uh, <laughs> I want to read a section here about Eustace. You guys know the story? You guys read the story? Eustace is one of the main characters, and as a young boy, he develops sort of an evil heart. He becomes a dragon. He wants to, uh, he wants to escape and find a way out of this, he wants to be done being a dragon, and Aslan, who represents Jesus, leads him to a fountain of pure water. You guys remember this part of the story? To bathe in. And Lewis, scholars say that it's possible that as he's writing this, he's explaining, he's in a parable form, talking about his own conversion. So just listen to the story and use this as voice. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in, in there and bathe, it would ease the pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. Then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet in the water, I looked down and saw that, my, saw that the skin on my feet was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. So Eustace repeats this process a second and a third time. Then it goes on. Then the lion said, 
you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat, on, flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as though I thought I had done it myself the other three times, only that hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on. And he th and threw me into the water. I smarted like anything, before, uh, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why. I turned to a boy again. This is the way it works. We try in our own effort, in our own ability to pull ourselves together, to change ourselves, to fix our problems, to make ourselves right before the Lord. but we need to let him do it. It might be painful, but that's not punishment. He loves you. He's not punishing you. The question is, are, are we fighting him? Are we letting him do it? Are we letting him transform us? Are we letting him move us more and more into his image? Or are we kicking against the prod? Fighting, pushing against him? Are we trying to do it on our own? Slowly peeling it off only to realize it keeps growing back? Are we letting him do his work? Letting him cut deep to the heart where transformation really happens? Okay, a couple more thoughts here. One of the most important things I think we learn from Saul's conversion is that our past does not disqualify us from God's grace. Paul was a murderer. His conversion scandalized Ananias. He was bothered by it. It scandalized the church. Jesus had to say, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine. But the reality is, real grace, transformative grace, grace is always a bit scandalous. It's always a bit scandalous. 
the John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, with a slave ship um, trader, he said this. He looked at the slave ships with horror, and he said, that was me. I did it. I did it freely. He never got over the scandal of the grace that was extended to him. That's why when he wrote the song Amazing Grace, he said, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Grace is always scandalous. Without Christ, the reality is, just like Saul, we are blind and helpless. We are dead, naked, ashamed. We don't need to just be strengthened and improved. We don't need a renovation. We need a transformation. We need to be made new. You don't need to be remodeled. You need to be reborn. Remember Aslan's, Aslan's claws. They've, it's got to go deep. It's got to cut a little to the heart. The reality is, the more I'm aware of my own wretchedness, the more glorious his grace is. This is why I think this is not just like a one-time thing that happens when you make a prayer and you surrender your life. This happens perpetually for the rest of your Christian life. You become more and more aware of your own lack, your own depravity, your need for Jesus. And as we do that, his grace gets bigger and bigger and more glorious and more powerful. God is determined to glorify himself through saving sinners. Those who are far, far from him. That brings glory to him. There's two things about the reality of the gospel that are hard to believe. That you are so bad that Jesus had to die for you. You are that bad. I am that bad. That Jesus had to die. And that he is so gracious that he was glad to do it. Which of those do you have a hard time believing? That you were that bad? That he had to die? Or that he is that gracious? Do you think... He is so loving, so kind, so gracious, so tender towards us. And conversion will always be, this, this process of transformation it always involves this sort of double-sided realization that I am way worse and he is way more glorious. He is way 
kinder, I am in need. This doesn't stop for us as disciples. We continue in this process for the rest of our lives until we are conformed into his image. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Jesus saves Saul, the murderer, the persecutor. He saved John Newton, the slave trader. He can save you. He can save me. He can save your coworker, your neighbor. Those who seem so far from Jesus that you cannot even imagine having a conversation about the gospel. His arm is not too short to save. He is fully able to reach them. Second thing, your past does not disqualify you from future usefulness. Verse 15, look at it again. He is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He's going to stand before kings. Jesus took his greatest enemy, the greatest enemy of the church, with the blood of the saints on his hands, and he puts him before kings and political leaders and the Gentiles to, to bring the good news with salvation on his lips. This is how our faith has always worked. You're not Nothing you have done disqualifies you from being a tool in the hand of Jesus. The greatest missionary in church history, Paul the Apostle, was once the church's greatest enemy. This is one of the mysteries of the gospel. The greater the damage of sin, the greater your potential usefulness. Because you are a picture of what grace looks like. You are an image of what it looks like to receive the grace that Jesus has to offer. The greater our need for grace, the greater God's glory is when he gives it. So Paul says, so the Lord says to Paul, get up. I have a plan for you. You are going to be a tool in my hand. You're going to bring the good news to the Gentiles and to kings and to my people. Millions. Trillions probably at this point. How, how many saints throughout the history affected by this murderous convert? In Philippians, we read this last week, Philippians 3, Paul's reflecting on his own history. He says this. I just want to close with this and we'll pray. 
Philippians 3, 4 through 11. Though I thought, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He recounts sort of his history. Circumcised on the eighth days of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This is it right here. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Everything else was trash. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. He is worth it. Whatever that process feels like right now of the Lord transforming you, he's worth it. The surpassing worth of knowing Jesus is it's far better than anything else, far beyond any other option. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that throughout church history, this is how you do it. You bring sinful people, wretches like me, to see your surpassing worth to see your glory, to experience a grace that is beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine, a scandalous grace that is too good to even speak. God, I pray even for us in this room tonight that you would remind us of that grace that you've given us, that you would Refresh us even on the story of your grace and how you have saved us and are saving us and are transforming us into your image. God, that we would be heralds of that grace, that we would, like Paul, tell the story of how your grace reached us. Your scandalous grace, your, your too good for words grace. Jesus, we love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.